If you have your Bible, please open it today to Romans chapter 9, and we'll be in the first eight verses of Romans 9. And if you don't have a Bible, then please uh, get one of the black pew Bibles that's on the end of each pew. And in that Bible, it's on page 945. And I do encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you as we are going through these scriptures. I want to just begin by reading those, those verses, Romans 9, verses 1 through 8. So let's hear the word of God delivered through the Apostle Paul. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen." But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I want to know if you've ever felt like the promises of God just aren't coming through. Maybe in some sense you are familiar with the Scriptures and you've been around Christianity long enough to know kind of what it is that God has said is true that He will do and, and what it is that's coming in the future for us in Christ, but you look around at the present circumstances and you just say to yourself, it just doesn't look like it's there. Maybe, maybe God's Word has failed. Well, that's kind of what this is about, is that question of, what do we do when the present circumstances don't match what is going on in the, uh, in the Scriptures, when it doesn't seem like those two things fit together? It's interesting because that's also when we are uh, gathering together on Wednesday nights in our prayer meeting, which I hope that you'll consider being a part of. Did you know that one of the... I'm going to just give a brief aside. One of the things that we pray for at prayer meeting is that you will come to prayer meeting. I'm not kidding, and I would love to have you there Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. But uh, we're in the middle of Psalm 89 right now, and that's exactly what Psalm 89 is about, is, is this recounting of all of these promises of God that are in Scripture and how God had made his covenant with David and that there's a confidence that God's word is true, and yet at the same time the present circumstances of the psalmist seem like it's not coming through like it's just not going to happen. And as Paul looks around at what's going on with the Israelites at this point, that seems to be kind of the feeling that Paul has as he's delivering the Word of God to the church at Rome and to us as well, is this feeling, well, there are so many promises in the Scriptures to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people. Why is it then that so few of the Jewish people have embraced the salvation that God has given through the Jewish Savior, whose name is Jesus. Why does it seem like God's promises are failing, like so many of those that Jesus came for are walking away from him? That's kind of what he's setting up, but we have the theme verse in verse 6 of what's going to come in all of chapters 9 through 11, 
It is not as though the word of God has failed. The word of God does not fail, has not failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. First thing I want to do today, and if you're following along on the back of your bulletin, there's a little outline there that might be helpful for this. Um, but the first thing I want to do is I want us to take just a step back and get our bearings for where we are in the book of Romans right now. We've been in the book of Romans for two years now. I know. But do you know how long Conrad Mabewe preached on Romans? 22 years. We're not going to do that. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones was in it for like 11 years. I think we're going to get done with Romans this year. Now, if we don't, that's okay, all right? But since it's been a while since we started this book, and since we're coming to a new section of it, then we, we should probably just kind of step back from the trees to see the forest a little bit and where we are, because what this book is about is, in verse 1 of chapter 1, it's about the gospel of God. That's what he says. He is an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, God's gospel. Man can come up with all kinds of versions of the gospel, all kinds of good news, all kinds of substitute gospels, but what we need is God's gospel. This is the one, this is the only one. And so he goes on and he describes what that is. And the theme verse of all of Romans, I told you the theme verse of chapters 9 to 11 just a second ago, but the theme verse of all of Romans is Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek so that's what this book is about, is to the Jew first and to also to the Greek. It's the same gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Before I describe a little bit more of what, what we saw throughout Romans, I want to remind you of something that I told you two years ago when we got into the book, so you've definitely forgotten by now, which is that the situation in the church at Rome that the Apostle Paul is writing to is that this is a church that was began as a mixture of both Jews and Gentiles, as most of the early churches did. The converts were coming both out of the synagogue and out of the general population, all of these people who were hearing about the salvation that Jesus gives freely by faith alone, in Christ alone, and they were coming together into the church. But there was a thing that happened in Rome not long after that church got started, which is that there was an emperor named Claudius who kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. And they were gone for, I think, something like 10 years. And so this church had a unique situation where um, it, they were almost entirely a Gentile church, even though it had started differently from that. Now Claudius is out of the picture. The Jews are allowed to come back into Rome, and the Jews who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ were coming back into the church and there was a little bit of tension, it seems, in a way, because a lot of those who who had, uh, you know, who were ethnically Jewish, uh, they were coming in and they were doing things like continuing to keep kosher and continuing to observe the the dates on the Jewish calendar and the festivals and things like that. 
By the way, we had a preacher come here named Baruch Mayos, who is a Reformed Baptist pastor from a Jewish background who pastored a church in Israel for many years. And he and his wife, they still keep some of those same holidays, not in the, the, the way that modern Judaism frames those holidays, but in terms of saying this is our heritage and we are part of this people and it's okay for us to observe some of these days. But there was a little bit of that tension of what do we do with this? These people have a different culture. These people seem weird. And, and is there a difference, you know, particularly that Jew and Gentile difference? Is there a difference in how God sees us? Is there a difference in how God deals with this people versus these people? Is there a difference in how God would save Jews from their sins as opposed to how he would save Gentiles from their sins? And the whole first four chapters of the book of Romans is saying, there is no difference. There is one gospel. It is the gospel of God. There is not a gospel for Gentiles and then a gospel for Israel and then a gospel for uh, this people and that people. It's one gospel. He, he spent the, the second half of Romans 1 describing how those who are among the Gentiles, even if they're out there on an island somewhere, even if they have never heard a word at all about Jesus Christ, that they have enough light to condemn them in their sins. Not enough light to be saved, but enough to condemn them. That, by the way, is part of why we must go and send missionaries and tell the gospel. Because everyone is lost in their sins apart from faith in Christ. But not just those Gentiles, not just those, those people in a tribe on an island somewhere, but also he turns in chapter 2 and says, also those of you who grew up in Jewish households observing the law and with the words of Moses read to you every Sabbath day. The gist of that is, in chapter 2, you too are under the judgment of God and lost in your sins unless you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is one and only one way to be saved, but it is a free and full and open path of salvation, and it is the person of Jesus who has come and lived the law perfectly where we didn't and died and taken the penalty for the breaking of the law in our place for our sins and risen from the dead victorious and is the king. He is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. He, he kind of sums this up when he gets to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. He says, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. You may say to yourself, well, no, surely my kids are good. You must evangelize your children. They don't naturally seek for God. Or maybe you have mistakenly thought to yourself, well, I grew up in church. I'm pretty good. I know this stuff. You must be born again or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You must, because on your own, your heart will not seek after God. God has to do something to you, and he has to come by the power of the gospel, through the preaching of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, take hold of your heart and change it. Take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And there's only one way to be saved, and there always has been, and there always will be, and it is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
He comes to Romans chapter 4 and establishes that it is by faith that God does this, by faith in Christ. And it's by faith in Christ that Abraham was saved. And you say to yourself, how could Abraham have been saved by faith in Christ? He lived a long time before Jesus. Well, you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Abraham had faith in Christ, even though he didn't know what his name was going to be, even though he didn't know how all of it was going to work out. He was looking forward to the city whose builder and foundation, who has foundations, whose builder is God. He was, he was looking to heaven. He was looking to the salvation that God would provide in the person of Jesus. He, he, he quotes all the time throughout the New Testament, he quotes in, in Romans chapter 4, this verse in Genesis 15, 6 where it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved by faith alone. And he says that is still the way how people are saved. Regardless of whether they are physically children of Abraham, whether they are physically children of barbarians, as it uses that word at some point in chapter 1, which that's what I am, physically a child of barbarians. But Whatever it is, this is how you come to Christ. Because it says in Romans 3, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law, through trying to be good, you might say, comes knowledge of sin. Just find out what a lawbreaker you are. But the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all And by all, he means Jews and Gentiles and Baptists and almost confirmed Presbyterians and everybody in between. Wink, wink. Here's how it comes. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and you are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received, here's the simple part, by faith. There it is. That's it to be received by faith. He, he goes on in Romans 4, 4 and says, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So in a way, the stuff that Paul's going to get to in Romans 9 through 11, he already dealt with in Romans 1 through 4. And so you could go back there and you could say, here's how you become a child of Abraham is by faith in Jesus. And the physical children of Abraham who do not have faith in Jesus are not part of the spiritual children of Abraham. They don't have the faith of Abraham. You must have faith in Jesus in order to be saved. But everyone who has faith in Jesus is brought in, as he's going to say in chapter 11, is engrafted into the vine of Israel and counted as children of God. Now, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, they're all about the assurance of salvation that we have as we have faith in Jesus Christ, that we can stand firm on the rock of Christ knowing that he won't let us go even when we're standing there sorrowful in the aftermath of our sin, saying, how is it possible that a Christian could have done what I did? That he is still the one that we run to in repentance and faith, and we cling to the rock of Christ, and we know we are secure, even when we're sorrowful for our sin. And then he goes on and describes that Christ is the rock, that we're secure in him, 
even when we are suffering in our circumstances. When you think to yourself, how could God possibly be on my side if he lets me go through these things? Well, that's where we ended up at the the end of chapter 8. I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's some assurance right there. That's standing firm on the rock of Christ. But we get to chapter 9, and it just almost seems like we have just hit the brakes, turned the wheel. There is a jerk. There is no transition. It's just boom. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. (laughs) And so it's important for us to see, hey, we've come to a new section, but we want to know where we are. And where he's coming to now in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is that question that I brought up at the beginning. How can it be? How can it be that when the Messiah came, the one that the Jewish people had had written about in their scriptures all along, the one that they were praying would come, the, 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 the shoot from the stump of Jesse who had been promised, when he finally sprang up to save his people from their sins, why is it that so, so many of the Jewish people looked at him and said, no thank you, no thank you. It almost seems as though the promises have failed. And that's kind of the theme of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And I will just sum it up the answer by saying we have to keep on evangelizing, whether Jew or Gentile, because that's the only way that people are going to be saved. That's what Romans 10 is all about. But at the same time, to trust that all of this is in the sovereignty of God, that there is a spiritual Israel both within Israel and that God is brought in from the Gentiles, who are those that God has chosen in his grace from before the foundation of the world, those that he has elected from eternity to be saved. As we come to Romans 9, I I, I talked to another pastor a while back who said, oh, you're coming up on Romans 9 now. Are you nervous about it? I was like, what are you talking about? We Do you not believe Romans 9? <laughs> There's, because a, Romans 9 is going to get us into this doctrine of election and the doctrine of reprobation. And yes, there are a lot of people who have trouble with those things, but if you just take it for what it says, it's I mean, it just is what it is, and it's glory to God in all of these things. But that's ultimately going to be the answer, is that all of this is within God's plan, and when we get to Romans 11, we'll also see that there is a great hope that God may, before Christ returns, turn a great, great number of the Jewish people to faith in the Jewish Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's just kind of where we are. That's just, should I, I don't know, should I start preaching? So let's, let's get into the actual verses in Romans 9, verses 1 through 3, that we see the anguish that Paul says that he has over Israel's unbelief. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now that's a strange way to put things. Why why would the Apostle Paul have to qualify something like that? To say, look, I am telling you the truth. I'm not lying. I, I, I am telling you this in good conscience. I'm telling you this aware of my union with Christ, that I don't want to offend Christ by bringing you a falsehood. 
I'm telling you this in the Holy Spirit as an apostle and dwelt with the Holy Spirit and delivering the word of God. I'm telling you this. Why is it that anybody might wonder whether he was lying? Well, the answer is that Paul was starting to get a false reputation as being anti-Semitic. That's just kind of the way to to think of it. And and it's almost a strange thing. Why, Why would Paul, who... He's a Hebrew of Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, trained up under Gamaliel. Um, why would anybody think that he was anti-Jewish? Well, the reason is because he had been faithful to the gospel. And the gospel says exactly what I just told you guys, which is what Jesus said, that I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Paul upheld the uh, Acts 4.12, which says that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the, the very fact that Paul was going from synagogue to synagogue and town to town saying, you cannot be saved from your sins and go to heaven unless you turn to faith in Jesus... That, together with the fact that he was also telling the truth that Jesus had fulfilled the ceremonial laws and and those who were in Christ were now free to do things like not have to keep kosher anymore, that sort of thing. Put all that together, and Paul had a a, a reputation spreading that was, was not a just reputation to have, but people were beginning to say, that guy has departed from the Jewish faith, And that guy is preaching against the Jewish faith. And that guy is saying that if you want to go to heaven, that you should leave the Jewish faith. That was kind of the the gist of things. And he is saying, I want you to hear this. I am not lying to you when I say that when I look at my brothers in, in my ethnicity, my Israelite Jewish family, He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And he he says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I want you to see two things from that. One is this. Paul actually has a deep, deep, deep love for these people. It is a reality that anytime you share the gospel with somebody in fullness and in truth, such that you are saying, repent or you will likewise perish, as Jesus said, when you're saying that, many, many of the people who hear you say that will think that you are bringing a hateful message. They'll come away with it and they'll say something like, he thinks I'm going to hell. Now here's the thing. What if you are? Is it loving for us to be quiet about that? Is it loving for us to say, I just won't bother offending you as you slip into eternity? That's not loving at all. But here's the reality. When you bring somebody the gospel, it includes, and this is why the gospel is rejected, it includes the idea that unless you repent and turn to Christ in faith, you will be condemned. You will be cut off from Christ. 
you will be accursed, as it says in verse 3. That, that is something where, as Paul went into synagogues and preached this, they thought, well, he has turned against us. But he's saying this is not the reality. The reality is I'm preaching the gospel because I love you and I care about you. And I want you to be rescued and saved and to have eternal life to the point where he looks at his fellow kinsmen and he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ. This is the other thing I want you to see here. He loves them so deeply that he even imagines, I would almost rather myself go into the fires of hell if it would get them out of it. That's a hard thing to wrap our minds around, isn't it? That's a hard thing to wrap our minds around. I think Christian parents, you could probably understand this a little bit if you're thinking about your own children. When we're thinking about the people who are closest to us that we care most about, if we think about what if my own children were in eternal danger, wouldn't I just rather go than them? Now, ultimately, that is not possible. This is a hypothetical scenario. It's not a real scenario. You can't go to hell for somebody else. You cannot be the substitute for someone else's sins. But I have good news. There is someone who's done it, and his name is Jesus. He has gone. He was accursed. He was cut off. And because he is both God and man, he took the eternal punishment that we deserve and he put it away in the one act of righteousness of death on the cross where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where he bore the wrath of the Father for my sins and for the sins of all who would ever believe in him. And he could say as he hung there and died, it is finished. He's the one who was cut off. But at the same time, what, one of the things that this shows us is that we ought to have a heart for the lost. Paul, we're at the beginning here of the clearest chapter in the Bible about the doctrine of election and reprobation, where we know absolutely clearly from what these words say, plain and straightforward, God decides who he saves. But if you take that doctrine... And you then say, therefore, I can be callous about it. Therefore, I can say, somebody's not believing. They must just not be elect. I won't worry about it. Then you are not on the same page as Romans 9 here. He has an anguish of heart. He wants to do whatever he can to win these people to Christ. He, he would almost, he can imagine himself even going to the fires of hell in their place because he cares so much about them. I want to know, do you have that kind of a heart for, we'll just take it for literally, first of all, what it's talking about, for unbelieving Jewish people? We, we live in a part of the country where I know that all of us have Jewish neighbors, friends, some of us Jewish family members. That's different than the part of the country where I grew up. I didn't meet anybody who was Jewish until I went to college. Now, you may say to yourself, well, that's why he's so naive. Well, I was 17 then. I'm 40 and a half now. So, But guys, when we see the Jewish people around us who are apart from Christ, I wonder if we reflect on things like this. 
I hope that you don't fall into some of the comments that you hear sometimes that are just ugly about their culture or about, you know, something... I'm not going to repeat stereotypes. That would be inappropriate. I hope that instead, that when you think of the unbelieving Jewish people in our community and around us and across the world, I hope that by God's Spirit that you might cultivate an anguish for their hearts like Paul has here. Just to reflect and to say, that is the nation that God set his love upon. That is the nation that God worked through. That is the nation that God used to deliver my Lord and Savior to me, to save me from my sins. And oh, how I would love to see them come to know their own Savior who brought the good news for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I hope we have that heart, and I hope that not just for the Jewish people, but for the lost in general, if you don't have a heart of anguish for the people around you who are lost and dying in their sin, who are at risk of slipping into the eternal fires of hell at any moment apart from coming to faith in Jesus... Why don't we care? If you don't, if you don't care, pray that God would work in you by His Spirit to care. This matters. This matters deeply. And so I, I hope that we can look at Paul's example and have something of that same anguish in our hearts. Now, does that mean that we then ignore the command to rejoice always? For again, I say rejoice. This is one of those little conundrums that you come to sometimes. I love to think about these things, these verses that almost sound opposite to each other. In Philippians, Paul says rejoice always. And here in Romans 9, he says, I have a constant and unceasing anguish in my heart. They're both there. He has a deep, deep heart for the lost at the same time that he has a deep joy about Christ. And I wonder, do you love Christ enough to have anguish in your heart for those who don't love Christ. That's what we need to cultivate and to pray for. He talks about what these blessings are, why it is that he so deeply appreciates his fellow kinsmen, the people of Israel. And when I say Israel, I just have to clarify. I I forgot to clarify it at the point in my notes when I said I was going to clarify it. We're not talking about the uh, the nation-state that exists that was founded in 1948 in the Middle East. That's not what we're talking about when I say Israel right here, okay? We're talking about those who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is the Israel that it's, it's talking about here. And what he says here is, they are Israelites, verse 4. And that's just a reminder, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And they are Israelites, and he says, to them belong, and he lists what these things are, and they're there in your notes, is first of all, the adoption. What does that mean, the adoption? Well, he's not talking about adoption in the same way that he talked about adoption in chapter 8, just a little while before this, if you remember that. He's not talking about being an eternal child of God. Not everyone in the physical descent of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is an eternal child of God. He's about to make that clear. But what does he say in the Old Testament? He says in Exodus 4.22, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. He says, I am setting this kind of love 
and this kind of care on this nation as though they are my own child. And of course, all of that is pointing forward to the Son of God who is going to come from that nation whose name is Jesus. But that doesn't set aside the, the, the reality and the beauty that God adopted this nation of Israel. He says in Ezekiel 16, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. He says, Israel, imagine where you came from. You were like an unwanted baby thrown out to die. But he says, when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. That's the adoption we're talking about. He took in this nation. It does correspond, makes us think about the beauty of God taking us in personally too, doesn't it? It's amazing. Theirs is the adoption. It says theirs is the glory. Now, does that mean that every single person among Israel will one day stand glorified with Christ? No, that's not what that's talking about. It doesn't mean, wow, what a great nation. It's talking about the glory of God that was present with Israel. As he recounts in Deuteronomy 5, as Moses recounts, he says, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. He's talking about when God spoke aloud the Ten Commandments in that booming voice that terrified everyone who heard from Mount Sinai. He says, God's glory was there with us. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we heard the voice of the Lord our God, any more we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? He says, remember, the glory of God came and manifested itself there in the middle of that people, the Jewish people. And manifested himself when he went forward in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Manifested the glory of God when he rushed in and filled the temple. Rushed in and filled the tabernacle before that. The vision of the glory of God that Isaiah had, of the Lord seated on the throne. The vision of the glory of God that Ezekiel had when he saw the glory of God sitting on top of this chariot with, with these turning wheels and, and all of these things, the glory depart, the glory come, that it was with this nation. And then he says to theirs, theirs is the covenants. Those covenants, I think especially he's talking about the covenant with Abraham. The covenant then that he made with Moses and with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, where he gave all of the, uh, the civil and the ceremonial laws together with the Ten Commandments. The covenant that he made with David that David's throne would be established forever, that someone would sit on the throne of David for all eternity, who we now know is the son of David, Jesus Christ. God sent the covenants through the nation of Israel. It says theirs is the giving of the law. It's, it's to the Jewish people that God spoke aloud the Ten Commandments that we hold so dear that we know are a guide to how it is that God would have us to live. 
That's why it says back in Romans 3, what advantage has the Jew or what value is there in circumcision much in every way? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He says, remember this, the fact that you have your Bible, the fact, you may have noticed that about three quarters of your Bible is what we call the Old Testament. Well, this was delivered to us because it was delivered to the nation of Israel and kept and preserved and used and cherished, and that is an advantage, that is something good that God has given the law. He says, to them is the worship. When he says the worship, usually when Christians use the word worship now, what they mean is a set of songs that they sing on Sunday morning. That's part of worship. But what it's talking about by worship here, he's talking about the system of worship that God had established at Mount Sinai especially the system of blood sacrifice that pointed forward to the blood sacrifice of Jesus. God gave that through Israel. He says, to them is the promises, promises like Isaiah 11.1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, the promise of Christ. He says, to theirs is the patriarchs, You know who we serve? We serve the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, Jesus says. To them belongs the patriarchs. And then he says this, to them belongs, or excuse me, not to them belongs, how do he words it a little different in verse 5? From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. By the word Christ, Christ is the, the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, or you'd say the anointed one. They're saying he is the one that was promised all along. This gets pretty personal for us right now. From their race came the only one who is our hope in life and death, Jesus the Christ. And, and he says this Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You know what it just said? It said that God has come into the world through the race and the flesh of Israel. And that's significant. It also says here that Jesus is God. This was one of a few places in the Bible where it says really, really directly that Jesus is God. Now, it's possible that you have one of a few translations that have uh, some, some of the commas put in different places to where your, your translation may not say that Jesus is God in this verse. It may say something like, He is the Christ who God has blessed over all forever and ever. I am about 90% sure that the way that the Greek grammar and the word choices and the word arrangements are put here, I'm about 90% sure that this is saying straightforwardly, Jesus is God. But even if that other 10% is the one that's right, there's plenty of other places in the Bible that say this just outright. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And even when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your house and they show you that they have a different translation that says He was a God, you can show them the next verse which says that nothing was created that has been created apart from him. I actually told that verse to a Jehovah's Witness yesterday, and he said, oh, I'll have to look into that. I'll get back to you. 
because they say that Jesus was created, but it says right there, nothing was created apart from him that has been created. Of course, there's all kinds of other places where Thomas comes face to face with Jesus after the resurrection and bows down and worships him and says, my Lord and my God, and Jesus accepts the worship as God. It's also the whole reason why Jesus was crucified. If you read Matthew 26 as he was on trial, what's the reason? They said he had committed blasphemy by claiming to be God, and that was the point where everybody together agreed that he ought to be executed. And it said that throughout his life, you being a man, make yourself out to be God, that is why we seek to stone you. That's why. He claimed to be God. And then, of course, there's Titus 2.13. He is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or 2 Peter 1.1, he is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or Jude 5, that Jesus is the one who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Or Joel 2.32, back in the Old Testament, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The name of the Lord, and then that's copied straight into Romans 10. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and it's the name of Jesus. It's the name of Jesus. I could go on and on and on, but I just want to tell you this. Jesus is God who has come in the flesh, and the point that Paul is making here is that we ought to have a deep respect for the Jewish people, for the nation, for the, uh, the people of ethnic Israel, because God used them to send us our Savior. And we want them to be his, or we want him to be their savior too. But what do you do with the fact that so many have not turned to Christ? Well, that's what he starts to deal with. And I'm just going to be in verses six through eight here for just a second. And then next week we'll pick up and we'll talk about the fact of God's electing sovereignty in who it is that he will save. But it says this, it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's word is not going to fail. Okay. Anybody tells you that we have discovered something that God's word has failed in, and so it just got it wrong in that, but in the, you know, in the overall gist of things that it's generally right, go somewhere else. Find somebody who is going to agree with what God says that his word does not fail. And it has not failed. And it will not fail. And, and what he says here with respect to why is it that so many from Israel have not believed in the Jewish Savior, Jesus Christ. He says this, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What he's saying here is that there is a spiritual Israel. As he puts it in Galatians, the Israel of God, the true children of Abraham, those who have the faith of Abraham. This is not a new thing in the New Testament, by the way, either. In the Old Testament, places like Isaiah 10, verses 21 and 22, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. God had worked through this people. God had worked through this nation. God had given them worldly blessings, but only those who circumcise not their flesh but their hearts were going to be forgiven of their sins. Only those who had the faith of Abraham. As he puts it in verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That's why John the Baptist could look at Jewish 
clerics and leaders who were coming up, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were, wanted to come and receive the baptism of John, and he could say to them, you brood of vipers, which means you offspring of the serpent. Think you're offspring of Abraham? Well, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Jesus said to the the Jewish leaders, if God were your father, you would love me. And then, of course, Galatians 3 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And know then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Guys, we need to come to Christ in faith. There are the children of the flesh, and there's some value to that. That's what this is mainly about at the end, you know, at at Romans 9, 4, and 5, especially all these things that God has done through that people. It's not that there's no value in being children of the flesh, but the eternal value, the eternal life is in being a child of the promise. I want to turn this right now, especially to those of you who are our kids in here today, okay? Talking to my kids. Hi, Jade. Talking to you guys, talking to all the kids. You will not go to heaven because you grew up in church. You will not go to heaven because your parents believed the gospel. You will not go to heaven because you're good at making people think that you know a lot about Jesus. It is not the children of the flesh who will be saved. It is the children of the promise. You need to personally turn to Jesus. You need to repent of your own sin. And you need to turn to Jesus and know that he died for our sins on the cross. And you need to accept him as your Savior as your Lord, you need to make your personal faith in Jesus personal. You need to be born again because you cannot be born by the flesh into God's family. You have to be adopted, and it comes by faith in Jesus. Turn to Jesus, turn to him in faith, and live. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the way that you have worked for thousands and thousands of years in revealing yourself, in giving the covenants and giving the promises, uh, Lord, in, in granting your glory to go together with the people of Israel, in granting the system of worship of the Old Testament that pointed us to Jesus and giving us the promises that are fulfilled in Jesus and giving the patriarchs who trusted in Jesus. Lord, in giving us Jesus, who is God over all, forever blessed. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart for the lost, whether it is our Jewish 
unbelieving friends and neighbors, whether it is others who are unbelieving. I pray that you would grant us a holy, sanctified anguish in our hearts over their lostness, just as Paul had, to move us to love them, to tell them the gospel. But God, I pray that each and every one of us in here would not just be children of the flesh in some sort of a way, but to be counted as the offspring of Abraham by the faith of Abraham. God, I pray that you turn our children to faith in Jesus, and I pray that you turn our adults to faith in Jesus and save us and keep us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.